Good morning. Now that was wimpy. Good morning. Much better. Glad you've chosen to worship with us today, whether it's here in our West Auditorium or in the East Auditorium or online. We are grateful that you have chosen to set apart this hour to worship with the family of God. My name is Rick. I'm part of the pastoral team. Uh, my actual role on staff is as the Disciple Heritage Fellowship or the DHF Church Liaison. And in that role, I get to try to connect Decatur First to about 130 churches across the country and then help those churches network in together as well. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning, but you know, I am really glad we are a multi-generational church. Amen? I love seeing people my age or above, and especially since Pastor Wayne uh, retired, I am officially the grandpa of the church staff. Okay? But I also love the generations under and, and seeing all the little rugrats run around. But those of you who are of my generation might remember something that sounds like this. Which was the lead-in to Mission Impossible. Very good. Just always was... It was just, I loved watching the little fuse going across the bottom of the screen. Now, those of you of the next generation might remember something more like this. Simple game. Is he serious? Always. Always. Now, those of you that were not born in the 1900s, don't want you to feel neglected, because the good news is, there's more coming. Mission Impossible, the TV show, started in 1966, when I was 13. MI, the series, the, the, the movie series, started in 1996. There have been six so far, but here's the good news. Number seven and number eight are being produced this year, and they'll be released in 2020, or at least uh, number seven will be released in 2023, and Tom Cruise is going to be using a new and advanced weapon called a cane. <laughs> okay, I just made that up. <laughs> but I love the way this American spy show started because after the fuse went through, it always highlighted. Mr. Phelps. And you heard this voice in the background, your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it. And then they finished the mission. And my favorite part, this tape will self-destruct. And then you'd see all this smoke coming out of the cassette tape, this old cassette player. And for those of you that were not born in 1900, if you need to know what a cassette player is, find someone of my generation. It always seemed incredible to me that the most impossible mission was completed in under 50 minutes. Isn't that stunning? I asked my son-in-law one day, my son-in-law's a cop, our son-in-law is a cop. 
how come you can't complete every, every investigation in 50 minutes? I mean, that seemed reasonable. He seemed pretty unimpressed with the answer or with the question. And his answer was something like, well, you've been a pastor 40 years. Is there still sin in the church? Oh. <laughs> There's sin in the church? <laughs> so that, that, yeah, that did kind of hurt a little bit. But, uh, you know, there are times where life seems like a mission impossible. It's hard enough to be a Christian. And then you're reminded every Sunday that one of the things that as a Christian you're supposed to do is learn how to share your faith with those who are not interested in it. And given all of the events that have happened in our country over the last couple years, choosing to stand on the authority of the infallible word of God when nothing around you reinforces that is becoming increasingly more difficult. We've been in a series in the book of Nehemiah over the last several weeks. And if you'll allow me to take just a minute to kind of set that historically. Nehemiah and the nation of Israel are now back after that period known as the Babylonian captivity, which ends somewhere around 537 B.C. When you look at the ministry of Ezra, that's the book right before Nehemiah, and then Nehemiah, they're normally dated somewhere around 445 to 444 B.C. So it's been, they've been back in the nation now, they've been back in their own land for about 100 years but as a people group, they are starting to adapt more and more to the culture, and they are start, starting to look less and less distinct from their culture. The spiritual fervor of the nation has grown cold. Obedience has always been an up-and-down matter for the people of God, and they found themselves in need of a spiritual revival, which happened under the ministry of Ezra. He's the one who rebuilds the altar so that sacrifice can happen again and then leads in the rebuilding of the temple. And then Nehemiah steps in to be driven by his great work to build the wall around Jerusalem for its own security and safety. And as Brian remembered, reminded us last week, that engineering feat only took 52 days to establish the wall around the city. But Nehemiah was concerned that the nation needed a second layer of security. And that second layer was to establish the word of God as foundational for the community of God. Now, you'd think that would go without saying, but it doesn't. I am grateful that both First Christian Church and the Disciple Heritage Fellowship have adopted very, very similar language, that we view the Bible as the infallible Word of God and as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Now, Nehemiah could build a wall in 52 days. Building the Scriptures as the foundation of my life is not going to happen in 52 days. This is an ongoing process. So what I get to do, here's my goal, over the next 22 and a half minutes, I get to convince you <laughs> to establish the Word of God as foundational in your life. Talk about a mission impossible. So here's my goal. I will promise to talk fast if you promise to listen fast. Does that work? Okay, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, May they be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, you are our strength, you are our redeemer, 
And we simply want to give you glory today, Father. Um, Lord, what we need to hear is not me. What we need to hear is you. So I pray, God, that out of my many words, your word to each of us is heard this morning. And that we would come away refreshed, Father. That the internal security of the word is matching the external security of your wall around us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, your Bible, turn with it. There's a few Bibles there for you. Use your electronic device. We're going to camp out for most of our time right here in Nehemiah 8. Verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. <laughs> now, we're going to pause just a minute there. Those of you who were raised in my generation, Watergate has a different image. Okay? So do not think of a hotel complex in Washington, D.C. Think of an actual gate in a wall established right by the water source, which protected the community by always bringing in good, clean water into the community. Okay? So all the people came together in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which God had commanded the nation, or had commanded for Israel. Bring out the book. Now, you've got to remember... In these days, in the 6th century B.C., uh, this would be the 5th century B.C., not everybody had the book of the law of the Lord. Each community might have one or two of the scrolls. So bringing out the book of the law of God means that this is a special occasion. Something is about ready to happen. Verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. In the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 3, okay? They read from daybreak until noon. Approximately how many hours is that? About six hours. Roughly from six in the morning till noon. They stood and listened to someone read to them. Does that not sound exciting? No. Hmm, okay. Now, why would they do that? For the 70 years that the nation lived in Babylon, they had virtually no access to the Word of God. For the 100 years they've been back in Israel, they had very limited access to the Word of God. And the limited access created hunger. It created hunger. Scripture says that they listened attentively. Literally, that means we're all ears. Now, I think that comes to us as a warning this morning, that we cannot allow the ease of access that we have to the Word of God to lead us into complacency about it. Amen? 2,200 people groups around the world representing millions of people, do not have one printed word of God in their language. A friend of mine back in northwest Arkansas, where we lived before we moved here, is connected to the underground church in North Korea. And he tells story after story of visiting a community, and that community had one page that had been torn from a Bible, and the entire community 
would gather week after week to hear that one page of Scripture read to them because they had no other options. Oh, we can't let it breed complacency in us. Verse 4. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built just for the occasion. It's the world's, the world's first pulpit. And Ezra mounts it to be able to read. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. Okay? Now, I want you to follow along closely. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood. All the people stood. Isn't that amazing? Now, all of this is going on. This is spontaneous. You may have been raised in a different church tradition or have visited another church where people stand when the gospel is read for the day. This is where that tradition started. It starts in the 5th century B.C., and there was such a respect that people stood to their feet when the Bible began to be read. Several years ago, Nancy and I visited friends of ours who lived just outside of Manchester in, in England. Graham was a, uh, a warden at his church, which meant basically he was like one of our elders, and they took us to just show us their church. And as we entered into their remodeled sanctuary, on the wall there was a glass case. So I asked Graham, well, what's in the case? He said, that's our pulpit Bible. Well, that's kind of cool. He said, would you, would you like to see it? Well, absolutely. Would you like to hold it? He put this book in my hands. And as I opened it, it was published, it was printed in the year 1540. Now, that was a little bit before I was born. <laughs> but here's what really made that moment incredible to me. You may recognize this name from history of William Tyndale. Tyndale was a martyr of the church. In the year 1536, he became the first person to translate the Bible into English from the original Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament. And the reward for his life's work of translating the Bible into the language so people could read it was execution. As a matter of fact, tied him to the stake, strangled him to death, set him on fire, and took his ashes and scattered them in the river. And I was holding in my hands a Bible that was printed within four years of his execution. He gave his life so that people like me could hold in my hands the very word of God. Nancy said she looked over at me and was afraid I was going to drool on this ancient book. I could not believe what I was holding. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. We'll say that in Hebrew, amen. <laughs> you can say in Russian, Rob Sean, it's kind of like what? Amin? <laughs> okay, it's one of those few words that kind of goes across languages. 
They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra began to read and he began to worship. And the people respond. And in the middle of that, they lifted their hands. Now, please understand, in ancient Israel, when anybody lifted their hands before the Lord, it was always done in a very specified manner. It was done with your hands open, and it was done with your palms turned toward the heavens. Your hands were open to show God that you were surrendering, and you were bringing nothing before him because there was nothing you could bring. And your palms were open so that if God at that moment chose to open the heavens and pour forth blessing, you would be able to catch what it was that God was pouring back in you. And it became a dual symbol in the history of Israel of both surrender and receptivity. And then it says that they worshiped with their face to the ground. This is why we do what we do week after week here at First Christian. Why do we open with, with singing and worship? It's not because we have a great worship team, although we do. It's not because the songs aren't great, because most of them are. It's because the worship of God cultivates the heart for the implantation of the Word of God. That's why we don't just jump into the instruction, because the heart needs to be prepared. Verse 8. <laughs> they read from the book of the law of God. Now, notice they did three things. They made it clear. They gave it the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Three specific words are used in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And the first one in making it clear literally means they were translating the word as it was being read. I did not mention this earlier, but for those six hours that people were standing while the word of God was read, they were reading it in Hebrew and they had lost that language in Babylon. The crowd spoke Aramaic. So somebody, they're not only standing for six hours while somebody reads to them, they're standing for six hours while somebody reads to them in a language they don't understand. Wow, that would be like me inviting Lisa and Ravshan to start right now reading in Russian and we'll stop at six o'clock tonight. <laughs> don't, don't say no to me. <laughs> Fortunately, the work of translation is pretty much done for us. You don't have to go to seminary to study Greek and Hebrew. All you got to do is pick it up because it's been translated for you. However, what can at times make this seem like mission impossible is that there are cultural things that happen that at times we have to translate into our culture. And I just did that through the symbol of the raising, lifting up of the hands. That's what it meant to the Hebrew then we need to incorporate what does it mean for me to be surrendered and receptive all at the same time. Now, that's a challenge, and, and I admit that. The second thing they said is they gave it meaning. That's the interpretation process. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we got to make sure we get this one right. Good friend of ours from a previous congregation that Nancy and I served, her name happened to be Melinda. One of her favorite phrases was, bad theology hurts people. And she is correct. 
Let me, a couple things just to simply illustrate that. In 1978, 903 people drank the Kool-Aid in a covenant of mass suicide led by their pastor. Jonestown, Guyana. Does bad theology hurt people? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Bad theology meant that the church used this book to justify slavery for hundreds of years. Bad theology means people still use this book to deny the giftedness and the leadership of women in churches. Truth matters, my brothers and sisters. And the third thing that the scripture says is that people could understand, that is, how do we apply this thing? Now that you've told me what it is, what do I do with it? Help me understand how I apply this in my own life. Well, we can suggest and maybe even help direct, but it's really up to the Holy Spirit to lay his burden on your heart on what he would have you to do with this particular word of God. And when God gives you that burden, you talk about mission impossible, <laughs> that call may shape the rest of your life. Well, I want to share with you just a few steps now that maybe we can turn the mission impossible to a mission possible, to establish the Bible as the foundational tool in our lives. So here's number one. I want to challenge all of us to develop a hunger for the Word of God. Here at Decatur First, this is one of our core values, to be biblically directed, to be shaped by the authority of the Word. Hey, that's great, Pastor, but you just need to know I don't have a hunger for the Word of God. That's okay today, but it's not tomorrow. If you have no hunger for the Word of God, then the thing you need to do right now is pray and ask God for it. I, I want to tell you, that is a prayer God is more than willing to answer, to create in you a hunger for His Word. Nancy and I are, are privileged. We're in a small group on Sunday nights. On Monday mornings, four of us men out of that small group meet together, and we have made an agreement for every year, for as long as we're all together, we're going to read the Bible starting at Genesis and quit when we get to maps. <laughs> no, we did not just add another book to the Bible, okay? It's just our way of saying we're going to go cover to cover every year. And we will text each other frequently throughout the week. And when we're together, how are you doing on your reading plan? Are you current? Are you up to date? Confession, I'm a day behind. There, I got it out. I feel so much better. Not in a small group? Fine. Find a spiritual partner. We want to be fully devoted disciples of Christ by growing and serving together. Then find someone who wants to read with you and dive into it that way. I challenge you, become a student of the Word. Dwight L. Moody, founder Moody Bible Institute said this, I have never met anyone fully used of God who was not first off a, stu a student of the Word of God. You want to be fully used of God? Got to know His Word. Got to know His Word. Number two, deepen my respect for the Word of God. <laughs> Scripture says that the Hebraic audience stood, they bowed in humility. Why, why should I respect this thing? Let me give you a couple reasons. Not only because it's the Word of God, that in and of itself is enough, but I want to give you a formula. But I need to tell you, as I give you this formula, my doctorate is not in math, okay? But here we go. 40 times 3 times 3 times 1,600 equals 1. Do you understand why I did not pass geometry? <laughs> well, actually, I did, but it took me, never mind. <laughs> 
That's actually a correct formula when it comes to this thing. There are 40 different identifiable authors who wrote the 66 books. Now, there may be more than the 40, but we can specifically identify at least 40 authors that God used in the production of this incredible literary work. It was written on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It was written in three different languages. Majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, with the exception of a few chapters in the book of Daniel. Daniel was written during the captivity. They're losing their Hebrew language. So there are portions of Daniel written in Aramaic, which is the language they were adopting. And all of the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. 1600 is the years in which this thing developed. God did not drop this thing from the heavens in King James. It didn't happen. Numbers chapter 33, verse 2, God told Moses, even now begin to record the events of the Exodus. So from the time Moses started writing in the 15th century B.C. till the time that John writes the Revelation in one in the first century A.D., 1,600 years in development, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, 1,600 years to tell you, Ken, one story. God loves you enough to die for you. There is no other literary work in the world that can make that claim. Alexander Campbell, who was a revivalist in the American frontier, and he started a movement that is eventuated in the Christian churches and the churches of Christ, said this is why we should forever and always be known as a people of the book. Deepen my respect for it. Last one. Actively listen for the voice of God in the Word of God. Now, I will admit there are days where I, my routine is first thing in the morning, I get up and I do my Bible reading. And there are days where it's simply, I'm checking the box. Anybody been there? Yeah. Yeah, I think we all probably have been at one time or another. But I've had to learn and train myself that God wants to speak more than I want to listen. So rarely do I start my morning devotions without quoting Psalm 119 and verse 18, which simply says this, Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things within your law. And I try to begin, God, I invite you to let me see something, let me hear something, even out of the tough portions of your word. Some, I, I'll admit there are times I'm tempted to start Matthew chapter 1 at verse 18 because Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is who begat who. And seriously, do we care who begat who? <laughs> well, yeah. Because <laughs> there are times, there's the stories told of, there's only four women that are mentioned in the begats, and the stories of them are absolutely incredible, and they still shape us today. Even in the midst of it, we have to train ourselves to listen. It's not going to be earth-shaking every time, but it's going to be working on my six-pack. Hey, it took me almost 69 years to grow this, okay? How do you get in shape? You have to work at it. It's like I remind Nancy every now and then, round is a shape. I am in shape. <laughs> she didn't laugh. <laughs> she doesn't find that one to be all that funny. 
Please understand, we work together. We work at listening for the voice of God. If we have to work hard physically, we may just have to work hard spiritually. Last week, Pastor Brian stressed a pattern that he finds reoccurring in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays, he plans, he acts, he expects opposition, but he still takes the next step. This past week, I was reading a book on taking care of your soul, and it concluded with an interview between beginning marathon runners and an experienced marathoner. Now, the beginning marathon runners confuse me. Why would you want to run 26 miles, 385 yards, knowing that the first person that ran across the plains of Marathon died? I don't get it. Okay? And the experienced runner said this, you're running for the glory moments. And the inexperienced runner said, oh, the glory moment is the finishing line. No. No. This is an extended quote, but I want to read it to you. This is what the experienced marathoner said. When you can barely breathe, when your legs are screaming with pain, when your mind is fuzzy and you want to give it up, you need to take the next step. Those are your glory moments. And they don't just come in running. When you're fighting a temptation that's been knocking you out for years and you say no, that's a glory moment. When you want to give up on God, but you take another step, that's a glory moment. The finishing line is not the glory moment. It's when you wanted to quit and you kept going. When you took that next step, that is your glory moment. My brothers and sisters, you may want to quit this morning. Your life may seem like mission impossible. Take the next step. You may be in a time when the word is dry and lifeless and heaven seems silent. Take the next step. When you know that the external security of the wall that God is building around you does not match the internal security of your time in the word of God, take the next step. How do you turn a mission impossible into a mission possible? Take the next step and then the next. Right now, 1123, this could be your glory moment. Take the next step. Father, we come to you today simply because of who you are. You are worthy of our praise and our worship. So we come as the community that lifts our hands and bows our faces. So much around us, God, makes it seem like this is a, an impossible mission. But you've told us in your word that with you all things are possible. God, I pray if there's anybody this morning that's hanging in the balance, that this would become the glory moment where the choice is made to take the next step.
God, perhaps we've been waiting on you for years and we're wondering why you haven't acted. This could be the glory moment when we take that next step and declare, I will wait for you. Your love, your word is my delight. God, meet us in the midst of our celebration this morning. We honor you. We respect your word. And we pray, God, now that whatever decision he needs to make, whether it's to begin the spiritual journey or to continue it, that this is our glory moment. Empower us, sweet Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus.